In less than a year, our podcast has gone from an average of 10,000 downloads a month to 50,000 downloads. What made the difference? You leaving us a five-star review. The more positive reviews, the more the algorithm picks us up, and more people are confronted by the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us press forward the crown rights of King Jesus by leaving us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks. All right, welcome back to another episode of Theology Applied. I am your host, Pastor Joel Webin, with Right Response Ministries. Now, in this episode, this is going to be the very first installment on a multiple-part series that we'll be continuing over the course of this entire year. And I'm going to be having the same guest returning again and again and again, a friend of mine, Mr. David Reese. He is the CEO of Armored Republic. He's been incredibly successful in the realm of business. He's also um, a pastor of a Presbyterian church. There's a lot of like-mindedness. We have uh, similar doctrine and uh, see eye to eye on a lot of things. And so I want to utilize him in uh mapping out kind of this deep dive, a, a returning series, multiple part series, uh, covering one dominant theme, which is Christian power. For decades now, within evangelicalism, uh, Christians have become convinced that power is icky. Ooh, power. God doesn't want us to have power. God is exceedingly pleased and impressed uh, when Christians are utterly weak. Well, that's not true. It's not. Uh, power is not inherently evil. We are called and even commanded to exercise godly dominion in every single realm of life, and I believe that David has done this well uh, in many different practical ways, in the ecclesiastical realm with his church, uh, but also in the realm of vocation, uh, markets, business. Uh, we want to be masters of our domain, pushing for the crown rights of King Jesus, pushing back uh, the kingdom of darkness. And so this is going to be, again, the first installment on a multiple-part series um, talking about what is Christian power, how can we wield it for the glory of God, uh, what is the key from Scripture, uh, the roadmap for attaining power and executing power uh, in a godly way. So, Without further ado, I'm going to welcome our guest, and we'll get started with today's episode of Theology Applied. Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. Our guest, without further ado, is Mr. David Reese. Welcome to the show, brother. Joel, it's uh, an honor to be here. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. Go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit just about yourself. What do you do? Your family, church, the, the whole nine yards. Great. So uh, I'm a pastor at Puritan Reformed Church in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm the CEO of Armored Republic. Um, we manufacture body armor. Um, we Our mission statement is that we create tools of liberty for free men to defend their God-given rights against tyrants and criminals to the honor of Jesus Christ. Mm. And in addition to that, I have a crown of a wife and I have six awesome kids um, I had the uh, honor of getting to officiate the wedding for my oldest son uh, recently, so that was um, a, a an emotional experience. Um, so that was all great. So that's 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 the key things that are going on with me. Great. Well. Um, let's go ahead and dive right into it. We want to talk about the Reformed uses and divisions of the law of God um, as the blueprint 
for exercising dominion. And so if we were to, you know, we'll see what we end up titling this episode when we roll it out beginning of next year, Lord willing, but probably something along the lines of, you know, we were talking offline preparing Christian power was your idea, which I think is a great idea because so many people in the church, especially evangelicals, Catholics don't seem quite as bothered by it as Protestants do, but uh, the Protestant, especially evangelical Christian, when they it comes to power, uh, they're like, ooh, that's icky. They just have this, <laughs> this default mindset that power is inherently wicked and evil. And if we want to be as pleasing to God as possible, we need to be as weak and pathetic as possible. So wh- what do you think about that? Let's go ahead and just kick it off right there. Yeah, so I think Christian power is, is not only something that's a good to possess, but it's also a mandate. In fact, when God created, he gave man authority, and authority is the legal right to rule, and the, the idea about authority is that you're supposed to exercise power according to that mandate. So God gave the dominion mandate, gave authorization, and required the exercise of power to work and keep, to tend the garden and to keep it. So working is using power to build stuff. It's additive. And then keeping is preserving the gains that have been attained. And so right. this obligation to use power in terms of constructive exercise but also in terms of a protective exercise, that's obligation. And so, in fact, you can't understand the law if you don't understand the way in which the law is a whole, it's an authorization network, right? It's it's a system of authorization for action. Hmm. And so uh, this idea that that we aren't, we aren't supposed to exercise power because it's somehow evil, we are the image of God, we're rational beings, and we're given authorization as prophet, priest, kings, to exercise power to fulfill the mission of filling the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea, by having lots of babies and teaching them all sorts of awesome truth from the Word of God, and grabbing hold of those that have fallen away, that are that are that are you know people that have been in the visible church and left, or those who are outside into the world, and and teaching them to repent and believe the gospel. Amen. Yep. Uh, I, I like, you know, the work and keep uh, work is, uh, it's, uh, when you think of Adam in the garden, you know, prelapsarian uh, world, if if he was working the garden properly, um, it wouldn't just uh, flourish in that um, specific locale. It would have naturally expanded. It would have eventually yeah. filled the whole face of the earth. And and so, you know, so there's this sense of working means um, it's building, it's expansion, it's, you know, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Uh, Christ as the second, the final Adam. Uh, but I also think of, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple, you know, that's this sword and trowel. So there's that expansion building, but then you have to defend uh, what you're building. And, you know, I, I've told our church before uh, that the, the sword only really exists to serve the trowel. If you're not building, then you, you don't even really need a sword because nobody's, uh, the only reason why you have enemies is because uh, you're actually expanding the kingdom of God. You're pushing back on uh, the gates of hell. You're pushing back on the kingdom of darkness and, uh, and you're a threat. If you're not a threat, if, you, if you're not building, you're not a threat. And if you're not a threat, you don't need a sword. Um, the, the sword serves the trowel. It defends, it keeps the gains, like what you were saying earlier. And so there's there's so much image, imagery in the scripture, whether it's the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, or whether it's the garden before sin ever entered the world, or whether, of course, Christ himself is the final Adam. Um, at every level, we see, you know, building and then um, defending. It's, you know, it's it's to pr- provision and protection, um, the, the sword and the trowel. So, um, but you're saying that the law of God serves as the blueprint for how we actually do that, that it's not just a blank canvas for man's own creative license and freedom, but God actually has a pattern for exercising dominion in the world. 
right? Absolutely. You mentioned Genesis and you talked about how, you know, there's this command to subdue the whole earth. And so subduing of the earth is making a habitation where man can go. So the making of garden is sort of the initial thing there. But you look at like Gen at Revelation, for example, and the fulfilled version of that is garden city, right? So there's this glorious beauty where man can live in habitation with all the comforts of the beauties of nature subdued and at the same time all the beauties of artifice right so nature and artifice and harmony being used and subdued by man um, and doing that and, and you look at the way that the earth is set up where where you have initially uh, before the fall and also before the flood before the face of the earth was dramatically changed you had the garden of eden and there were four rivers that were running out of it and rivers you know historically have been the highways for the transit that's necessary for trade and communication right and so you had these rivers going out from sort of this hill garden you know and and then you had the lists of the stuff that was sort of along those rivers which like oh over here there's gold and havala and stuff like that and so it's like here's the trade goods that could be acquired here's the you go set up places and you can acquire different things and they're going to be able to have a trade network where they could use that system of rivers to go back to a central trade hub that is eden and so there's this whole setup for dominion there so god clearly gave that you know in the in our reformed standards for example in the westminster confession of faith or in the london baptist confession chapter 16 is on good works and it says uh, in the very beginning of that section one it says that that there are no good works except for those things that are given to us by warrant from the word of god so good works are not the things without the warrant of the law of god and so what god commands tells us what we're authorized to do and you might look at that and go you know whoa, whoa, whoa. How, how do we do that how do we say that how do we take that 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 view well first of all God's not an idiot. Um, he designed us. He designed the world. And the law is explaining for us as a schematic outline how we're designed and how the world is designed. So it tells us, for example, in the fifth commandment, if you honor lawful authority, it's going to result in longer life and greater prosperity. And you can find all sorts of other promises of blessing or threatenings of curses all over the place in the law. And the Westminster Larger Catechism in question 99 has this great thing where it has this list of principles that you can apply while reading the law. It helps you to kind of unpack the law and it becomes this very full thing. So if we realize that the law of God is designed, and we talked about this working and keeping, all of the commandments have this, here's a positive duty that you're supposed to build with. So mm. the commandment to not murder is the commandment to preserve life, to increase life, and to protect life. And then the commandment to uh, not murder in the negative element there. The keeping is, you know, don't murder, don't don't attack, don't knock out somebody's tooth, don't knock out somebody's eye. And so you've got the the preserving element and you've got this positive element, the constructive piece. And you can take that positive and negative element and go to every one of the laws that are given to us in the Ten Commandments, but also all the little subcases, the case laws and stuff like right. that. So we're going to talk about kind of the organizing principles for the law here, but that's just that that foretaste is is there's this amazing logical organization around the positive and negative elements of the law. Amen. Yeah, it's a blueprint. Uh, David delighted, King David delighted in the law of God. It wasn't just a begrudging submission. Uh, we A lot of times we see the law of God, you know, people always say, well, we're under grace, not under law, which is a complete misunderstanding of what it means to be under grace, uh, what it means to be under law in terms of, you know, the law actually condemning us. We're no longer, if you're in Christ, you're not condemned by the law. But the law of God, the better way I think to view it is um, that it's it's like the life hack for God's living in God's world. It's it's the um it's the the not just the blueprints but it's um you know I think of uh, back to the future 
um, that, uh, what was his name? Bip or something, you know, this, this guy, and he, he had, uh, he found the sports almanac and then he took it back yeah. to the past and was betting on all the games, you know, cause he knew what the outcomes would be. Uh, that's what the law of God is like that you, the law of God, um, it, it really is a treasure. It's, it's, it's not, um, a mere constraint. It's saying, uh, this is how things will go well with you. You, you plug and play. This is how God designed the world. This is how he set it up to work. Um, if you live in God's world, uh, in this way, then, uh, then things will go well. And that's so like the law of God, it's, it's, uh, you know, whether it's Ezra, you know, dusting off, you know, the book of the law, like it's, it's to be cherished. It's a roadmap for, success in, in living in God's world. So um, let's, yeah, let's go ahead and, and uh, maybe start with, you know, wherever you want to go, but maybe divisions of the law or uses of the law. What, what do you think we should go next? I think first, you know, one of the things, you know, Gordon Clark says in a lot of his writings, he says, if you don't define your terms, you don't know what you're talking about. And I think you quoted earlier this idea, you know, we're under grace and not under law. You know, how is that term being used? In that particular text, you know, it's very specifically talking about how we are under the covenant of grace, whereby, you know, we're saved by faith, apart from the works of the law, not under law as in the covenant of works, right? That's the context right. in that passage. And mm -hmm. so what I want to say is there's three ways of defining the term law, and there's three ways of defining the term gospel. And if you read the Bible, you've got to know which sense is being used, right? So the term law can be used to mean specifically the commandments, like what you ought to do. And those can be used as a covenant to show you your guilt, um, or they can be used, and we talk about the uses of the law, we, we, they can be used to show you your guilt and your need of a savior, which is one of the things that happens with the, the covenant of works. But then there's also the fact that it's a chain that binds evil, restrains it. Right. And it's also a lamp unto the feet of those who are regenerate uh, to know how to live wisely and well. Um, so there's the, the first definition is a commandment. The second definition is the law sometimes is used to refer to the old covenant, the old, the old Testament, right? The, the covenant of grace uh, given you know, to Adam all the way up until we have the new covenant with Christ, that whole chunk, the, what we call the Old Testament, is a way of using the word law. And other times you can see the word law used to refer to just the whole word of God. And so those three uses, the commandments or the Old Testament or, you know, the idea of the whole word of God. Mm -hmm. and so the, word, the term gospel actually has basically the same uses. The word gospel can be used to refer to the whole word of God. It can be used to refer to the New Testament. Or it can be used to refer to the indicatives, the promises, the statements right. of, of facts, right? So that's a, it can be used on a very small grammar level, or it can be used to refer to the Old Testament, New Testament, the law gospel, or you can have law gospel both being used to mean the whole word of God. So you have to, when you're reading a passage, know which thing is being talked about. Right. That's good. So as we, as we build from there, and we talk about the uses of the law, that the law, when we talk about the commandments, but we're now the rest of the show, we're, we're not talking about you know, just the whole word of God. And we're not just talking about you know, the Old Testament. We're talking about very specifically the imperatives, the commands. When God says, do this, that's what we're talking about. And so when we, when we look at that, um, we need to understand that there are, in terms of the use of those commands, there are sort of three levels where you can look throughout the Bible and you can find the things that God says, do this and don't do that. And so when you're looking through the scriptures, those three levels are, you've got what are, what are these big commands, the principles, right? So you can think about like, love God, love your neighbor. Those are the two organizing principles for the law. The Ten Commandments can be broken into the two tables underneath that. And so those are the big principles, the, the love God, love neighbor, or then the, the Ten Commandments can be organized underneath those. And those are the principles. And historically, the word that's been used, it's the $10 word, is the apodictic law. Uh, and so, so the, the commands that are at this big principle level that you can't really ignore that this obviously is a commandment from God. 
And then the next level down is the case laws, which are called casuistic. Um, you can see the connection there, the word case and casuistic case law. And so these are the if-then statements, right? So the first one's the big principles. Then you've got the if-then statements. And lastly, you've got examples. And the examples that are either approved or disapproved. And so the approved examples are obviously given to us, for example, to follow. The disapproved examples are given for us to know that we should avoid a similar fate or a similar path. And so those are the three levels. And when you, when you take all of the big principle commandments, the case laws, and organize them under those commandments, and then take the examples and organize them in relationship to the case laws and the big principles, that's how you get a systematic view of the law that gives you a blueprint for all of life that is right. sufficient for every rational choice. Right. That's great. All right. Everybody's been asking, can I live stream your conference? And the answer is a resounding no. You will be there in person or you will not be there at all. I'm just kidding. You actually can live stream the conference. We're excited to announce we're making it available to anybody and everybody who wants to watch this conference right as it's happening, which is March 1st and 2nd. That's a Friday and Saturday of 2024. What conference am I even talking about? It's called Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. We've got Pastor Douglas Wilson. We've got Dr. Joe Boot. We've got Brian Sauvey. We've got Eric Kahn. And then, of course, yours truly, Joel Webbin. We've got seven primary sessions in the conference, each one being probably 50 to 60 minute long uh, sessions, lectures, sermons, whatever you want to call them, and then two live panels, each being an hour and a half long. Now, one of the panels is on biblical patriarchy. We're going to have uh, Pastor Douglas Wilson available for that panel, and we decided to get Eric Kahn, because Eric Kahn, biblical patriarchy, let's just be honest, it's a sensitive topic, but Eric Kahn, I think, is known as one of the most nuanced, careful, and sensitive individuals, especially on the Twitter streets. So we're going to have him as a part of that panel. It'll go really well. Then the second panel is Haunted Cosmos live show. You've got Brian Sauvey and Ben Garrett talking about the most unhinged things imaginable, hopefully some things that are actually true Truthful. Now, th th there will be some truthful things. They're going to stick to scripture, and when they speculate, and you know they will, they'll at least let you know that it's speculation and they won't pass it off as though it's in the infallible word of God. So, live stream this conference. How do you do it? Go to patreon.com forward slash right response ministries. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash right response ministries. A lot of guys charge 50 bucks, 60 bucks, 80 bucks. We are asking that you would simply partner with us for $10 a month. And let's be real. You could do it one month, live stream all the content, and then cancel your subscription. And if you do, no harm, no foul. If you want to stick with us and support this ministry, what God's doing through Right Response, then praise God. That's great. And we thank you. Either way, technically, it's only 10 bucks. The danger of centralized power is often represented by the word king. As Americans, we hate the word king. Civilian ownership of body armor is about helping people to have increased power to resist tyrants and criminals. And so Armored Republic is about helping you to preserve your God-given rights to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the King of Kings and he governs kings and he will judge them. This is Armored Republic and in a republic, there is no king but Christ. We are free craftsmen and we are honored to be your armor smith of choice. I like what you were saying earlier in terms of, you know, the big principles starting, you know, you were using the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. 
um, that so many, so much of the case laws that we find, um, they're all stemming from the the positive assertion of if thou shalt not murder, then thou must esteem and protect and preserve uh, yeah. human life made in the image of God. And so, whether it's you know a precipice, you know, on the border of the roof, um, it's the same same kind of mindset. There is you know we're esteeming human life, we're protecting uh, human life, and so you know you're taking all these different case laws, and they all find their root, you know, their their equity in one of these major. Um, principles that God has uh, has designed for us. And so we're, we're not saying it's a one-to-one ratio of, uh, you know, Old Testament Israel under the Old Covenant and then dropping that down in 2023 America, but it is the same principles, the same equity, that's immutable, it's unchanging. Um, and so we're not, you know, we're not on the, uh, the roofs, but find me a, a balcony uh, that doesn't have uh, a railing. Like we right. still do, we still do this. Not, none of this is novel or, or has changed. We're you know two thousand years removed from Christ, and yet we're still um, as a even post Christian society. We, you know we're still looking at the law of God, um, even if we don't realize it, even subconsciously, and and applying that in our given place and time. And when we do that uh, faithfully, uh, we're blessed. And when we don't, and we spurn the law of God, uh, then we're cursed. Absolutely, and I think. Yeah, I'm not sure where you land on this. So I'd be really interested in your in your thoughts on this. But I mean, my my understanding of all the case laws and everything is that there's the general principle of equity, right? There's a principle of justice that's applicable universally, um, and that basically the the pieces that are technological don't necessarily have a binding on us. The things that are particular to Israel, but that everything else is going to teach to us some sort of a principle that we need to apply to properly understand justice. Yes, absolutely. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, even even a baby goat being you know boiled alive in its mother's milk, um, you know I've used that uh, particular law um, to uh, to preach against uh, the hormonal uh, birth control pill um, because uh, the milk of the mother that mother goat uh, the reason why it's improper uh, to use that milk of a mother goat in order to boil alive its baby its young kid. Um, is because uh, the milk is the life source. Um, and so it's a perversion of taking that which is uh, meant to produce and grant life um, and using it as an instrument of death. Likewise, then looking at um, a woman's uh, womb as a conduit for, uh, for life and, um, and thriving and hospitality and taking the very place, uh, the very context, the, the womb of a mother and making it a death trap, whether it's, you know, thinning uh, the uterine wall, you know, with all these different um, uh, implications that, that happen from the hormonal birth control pill that take uh, what's supposed to be the safest place on earth um, and a place that, that is a source of life and growth and thriving and makes it um, a place of poison and death. Um, you know, so, my, you know, I, and you could just go from the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. But the point is, um, there's multiple laws, even not boiling a, a baby goat in its mother's milk. And you can, you can take that as your primary text on the Lord's day and preach that, um, as it pertains to, um, abortion. And it's absolutely a right, a right, in my opinion, um, use and application of the law of God. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's that's a beautiful application. Of that. I would say that I think that that particular law is a ceremonial law, and I think that you're taking the moral precept that's there in that symbolism 
and giving a right application in the examples that you just gave. And so whether we would both, whether I would put it under civil or ceremonial, you know, a different, you know, a, a smaller part I'm of that. I lean towards ceremonial on that one too. I And that's what, where I probably differ from a few guys is that I, I look at some of the ceremonial laws and I'm like, I think the general equity of, of the ceremonial laws um, is still applicable as well. Like a, a man can't, uh, go into the house of the Lord um, if his testicles are crushed. I think there's some general equity there uh, that men need to be men and not be emasculated and that uh, worship in the house of God requires, uh, if you're a man, um, it forbids effeminacy. And like, I feel like you can you can take, that's certainly ceremonial, but I feel like I can take that and I can preach it. So Yeah, I think that's a powerful thing. So I don't think, it's obviously, it's an interesting part of uh, Isaiah prophesies a time uh, where there will be you know, a Sabbath that is, is during the time where there are going to be eunuchs who come into the house of God, which is about the, uh, you know, the gospel era church. And I think that that's the way in which they're able to enter in there. And so there's not actually, of course, a need for eunuchs to stay out of the assembly uh, of the church, but that, yes, that it is, I think that application of why are they kept out? Because there's some way in which there's some damage to the construction of that man. And so I think that you're right, that there's a, a destruction of their their masculinity that's occurring. I agree with the symbolism there. So the application, yeah, I agree with, and I think you would, I'm sure you would agree that you wouldn't tell eunuchs to stay away from your uh, right. Lord's Day. Assembly. Right. But, Not okay. in a literal sense, no. Uh, but I would so tell that, spiritual eunuchs um, who are effeminate that they should repent. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's fair. So chapter, chapter 19 of the, of, of, of the Westminster Confession, and again, also the London Baptist, you have the chapter on the law. And it talks about you know the the division in terms of the types of law, right? So there's the moral, civil, and ceremonial, which we've been talking about. And so the moral law is obviously going to be those things that are applicable that have been given even since the writing of the law on the heart of Adam in its uncorrupted form. And then there's the corruption of the nature that occurs with the fall, um, and and so then you have this corrupted the law written on the heart. But then there's the giving of the commands through propositional revelation as well, captured for us, for example, in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, where you've got the Ten Commandments laid out in those two passages. And so when you have the, the, the moral law given, the two great commands, the Ten Commandments, that being the organization of them, you've got all these moral principles that are given to us. And then there's the civil law, which applies specifically to the state. And the civil law is applicable only to Israel in its very particular form. And that state has expired, and so those laws no longer apply. But it is a tool to teach us the general principles of justice, like we were just talking about. So that, that language of general equity comes from the discussion of the civil law, where there's you know, general equity could also be referred to as common law or principles of justice that are universal, would be another way of saying that. I think the common law is an effort by Christians historically to take the civil law and make applications to every nation. And so when you read you know, Calvin's uh, Institutes, he sounds a little bit like a guy who's kind of running away from the application of a lot of those details. But when you read him writing when he's older, for example, and you read his commentary on Deuteronomy, he just all of a sudden sounds like a hardline you know, theonomist. Mm -hmm. and, and it's because I think he's had to work through a lot of stuff as he got older, interacting with the council in Geneva and stuff like that, where they're trying to figure out what's just in this situation. And he's having to go to the passages of scripture and draw it out. And so if you interpret you know, the Institutes from Calvin, for example, in a way that is different from how he applies it when he's dealing with the exegesis of the text in Deuteronomy. I'll tell you what, I'd rather go with his detailed exegesis of Deuteronomy and his harmonizing of the law than to try to go with some of those general broad statements where he's giving a theoretical application of the common law and distancing it from the Mosaic law. So I think he gave to us an excellent example in his commentaries of what he actually means. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say that, that civil law 
we have to take it in the same way and think about the case laws teaching us about justice. And it's going to teach us about principles for administration and things like, you know, cities of refuge. You don't have to have seven, you know, cities of refuge laid out exactly the same way that Israel does, but it's going to teach us about the idea that you need a place where people can go to higher courts and be free from mob rule when there's a high level crime that's occurring and there's going to be a trial. So you're separating out from a biased jury or biased judicial system to have these courts of appeal. And those are examples of where you would take those details of administration and you would work through all sorts of applications. Now, with the, with the, with the ceremonial law, it talks about how, and this kind of relates to what we were talking about, this idea of maybe general equity of, of the ceremonial law. It says there's two types of ceremonial law. There's the ceremonial law that are types and shadows that point forward to Christ, that are fulfilled in Christ. And then there's the second category, which are the things that are kind of the, the moral teachings that are symbolized. So I think, you know, that, that the not boiling, um, the, the goat in the, in the, in the milk of his mother is a perfect example that that's not a type and shadow fulfillment. That's a moral typology, which right. I think is what you were talking about before there. Yep. I think you're right. Um, what do you think? I, I'm curious your view on, um, do you feel like there's any application for us today other than just simply um, a good gospel sermon uh, with cities of refuge and the high priest, when the high priest dies, then all of a sudden everybody in these cities of refuge is able to go free? Like, obviously, I mean, you know, I think of Thomas Watson and Matthew Henry and, you know, all the Puritans, like, I mean, that text, you know, will obviously preach, you know, that we need a high priest, you know, we're all in cities of refuge, you know, and hiding from, you know, the wrath of God. But when a high priest dies, then all of a sudden the prisoners go free, our sin is atoned for, and Christ is that high priest. And, you know, and so you can preach the gospel from it, uh, it but is there any, um, is there any application of that element of a city of refuge that you could think of for society today? So... If I were, you know, if I'm trying to think about a principle to draw out, it seems like the closest application that's been worked through in Western civilization has been the principle of a statute of limitations. And it's interesting, as opposed to having sort of this organic statute of limitations where you've got, here's the high priest, and when he dies, it, it does that, right? And that could be, you know, that could be five years, it could be, you know, 50 years, depending on how young the right. guy is, how, how long the Lord preserves his life. But so I think statutes of limitations might be a way of taking that principle. But it's interesting because, you know, in Western law, historically, we find in Protestant countries is we have not had a statute of limitations on things related to the death of a person. And so mm. many of the times when people would need to flee to a city of refuge would be in reference to that. So it seems like if there is an application there, it would be that we should not have people's when people cannot be convicted through the due process of law, some sort of reasonable time frame, that we need to not now just kind of have vexatious suits even for those things, but instead to allow certain things that end, uh, certain things to just end and to move on. And so yeah. I do think it's probable that, that that is the case. I would need to study a little bit further, but I don't, I'm curious, what do you think about that statute of limitations? Yeah, I think that's good. I like that. So if we, if we continue to think through kind of the general organization of the law, you know, we've talked about... Um, sort of this, 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 the organization itself. We've talked about the definitions of the term law. We've talked about the uses, and we might go into that a little bit further. But I, I do think before jumping into further application, you, know, you talked earlier about connecting back the case laws to the big categories, like mm -hmm. taking the, you know, the parapet around the roof or, you know, on a, uh, on a balcony and connecting that to the Sixth Commandment. I think you're absolutely right there. But I think it's also important to realize that we should connect all laws back to the two great commandments, in terms of the love of God and the love of neighbor, and ultimately to the purpose of life, which is to glorify God. And so 
um, this, I think talking about this in terms of the doxological focus, in other words, a focus on the doxa, the glory of God, that we need to interpret all law with the goal of glorifying God in mind, and we need to view this, the laws, as being interpreted for the good of man, and we have the good of man defined as you know, ultimately knowing God and then you know, growing in the knowledge of God and spreading the knowledge of God to others by acting in accordance with the knowledge of God, which is what his law teaches us. And so we're not just, you know, rank, you know, utilitarians that, you know, the ends justify the means. And we're also not just deontologists that say, just obey the commandments. What we have to do is we have to read the commandments in terms of the goal. And we have to view how we're going to get the goal in terms of the law as an instruction set. And that's how it serves as a blueprint for dominion. It tells us not only that, you know, X marks the spot where we're going on the map, but it also tells us the path to take. Right. And so one of the dangers that you can run into, for example, with the Pharisees, the Pharisees, you know, Jesus rebukes them by saying, when they're trying to say, you know, works of mercy, like healing people on the Sabbath are unlawful. He's saying, look, you're interpreting the law so that man is made for the Sabbath. But in reality, the Sabbath is for man's good. And so we need to interpret the Sabbath law as being a law that's given for the good of man. And so if you make the Sabbath destructive, that would seem to be exactly what you were talking about before in terms of using the mother's milk to, to cook the goat in. Right? Right. And so that principle, that principle, that law, that, that, that ceremonial law that you mentioned earlier seems to be another way of talking about that idea of we need a doxological focus to think about the good of man and using things for that purpose of glorifying God and building men up to be knowers of God. And so I think having that perspective on the law really helps us to avoid a bunch of misinterpretations and twistings that we would have if we just read it as a set of rules and didn't have a way of organizing it towards a goal. Would you like to get control of your money and set up a system that will guarantee for the rest of your life tax-protected compounding interest and growth? How about having 24-7 electronic access to your money for funding wisely chosen investments, home improvements, and other large expenditures without going to the mainstream banks? This is not a dream, but it could actually be a reality when working with our sponsor, Private Family Banking. See their contact information in the show notes below. To make this season even brighter, Private Family Banking is giving away a pair of tickets, a $500 value for the upcoming Blueprints for Christendom 2.0 conference, which is taking place on March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of 2024 in Taylor, Texas. To enter the ticket giveaway, join their email list by sending an email to banking at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's banking at privatefamilybanking.com with the subject line of your email saying tickets, then include your full name and mailing address in the body of the email. The ticket giveaway entry period will end at midnight central time on February 13th, 2024, and the winner will be notified via email on February 14th. You must be 18 years of age or older to enter, and only one email per person can be entered into this giveaway drawing. Real quick, David, maybe we, um, it'd be interesting to mention um, one thing that I come across a lot in pastoral ministry is, you know, people will look at Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and, you know, where Jesus says, well, you have heard it was said long ago, you know, and then he he quotes uh, scripture, he's quoting Moses, uh, but I tell you, and then I think a lot of people uh, use that as an example of Christ somehow being pitted against 
the law, the Old Testament law. Um, whereas I, I'm, I'm curious your take on this. My, my take on it is, um, you know, they, they often marveled. It says they marveled for he taught as one who had authority. And, and one of the ways in which Jesus taught as one with authority is that um, he wouldn't constantly be citing some other Pharisee or, or former scribe. So when the Pharisees and scribes, when they were teaching, they would say, you know, well, Gamaliel, you know, or whoever such and such has said and such and such. But, uh, but what Jesus would do is he would, he would actually go back to the original sources. He would go to Moses. Moses said, um, and when he says, but I tell you, he's not disagreeing with Moses. He's disagreeing in my assessment with, um, with these modern for his day, uh, relatively modern scribes and Pharisees who were, uh, improperly exegeting Moses. So Jesus is going back to the original source, uh, the word of God, the Mosaic law and saying, so Moses said this, and, but I tell you, this is what Moses meant. This is, uh, this is the actual interpretation um, of, of this law. So, you know, when Moses said uh, you can, you know, give a certificate of divorce, you know, um, it wasn't uh, meant to be for burning the toast. You've, uh, these other guys, they say, they interpret Moses to say that, you know, if a woman burns the toast and the man can send her away so long as he gives her, you know, a write-up. Um, but I tell you, it was not so since the beginning. This is what Moses meant. God did this because your hearts are evil. Uh, even then it was meant to be sparing. And, you know, and so, um, what, what, what do you think about that? Because I, I think a lot of people, they'll say, well, even Jesus seems to be against, um, against the Old Testament law. He's, you know, he has a whole sermon where he quotes the Old Testament law and then, and then argues with it. But I tell you, but I tell you, how, how would you uh, explain that to the listeners? I'd say just so. I think, I think you just laid it out excellently. Okay. The issue is that Jesus is not, uh, you know, making void the law of Moses. He was under it. I mean, he was, Jesus was on the old, under the Old Testament. He was bound by the Old Testament laws. He was bound by the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law, and he perfectly fulfilled the law. And that's why he was able to provide for us, you know, provide a perfect offering of himself as a sacrifice for sins to provide full satisfaction for all of our sins and a perfect righteousness right. so that we are counted as fulfilling the whole of the law because he perfectly kept the law. His and act of obedience, not just yeah. his passive obedience, but we actually, he doesn't just bring us to a, a neutral state or a state of moral innocence, but there's a full presence of righteousness, fulfilling all righteousness. Amen. Absolutely. And that's exactly what's imputed to us is we get that active, right, that active obedience, his perfect righteousness, where he fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law for us in our stead and in our place. And so um, he is exactly like you just said, he's explaining uh, the original meaning. And I think Amen. so much of what we have to do as, as pastors is clear away all this garbage that people are laying on top of what the word of God says. So they're like, when Paul says that women shouldn't speak in church, what he means is they should speak all the time, especially from the pulpit. And, like, you know, this, right. this nonsense where they've managed to take it and, and, and try to make it meaningless. I mean, everyone read the text and you know that's not what Paul is saying. And, you know, so there's this, when, when, when people come in and try to take the word of God and twist it to their own destruction and to other people's destruction, the, the appropriate thing for the teacher to do is to go back to the text and show people how stupid what is being said really is. And I think right. Jesus was a master of that. Amen. And and I like what you, you know, just you citing Paul, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, but that's one of the things that, that I've gotten to uh, appreciate about you is... Um, the regular principle of worship, but for all of life, uh, that it's not just on the Lord's day. We, you know, certainly um, can, can be nothing less than the Lord's day, but um, so much of what we're talking about when it's, uh, when we're talking about adherence to God's law, we're just, we're talking about carefulness, which is just completely yeah. lost. Um, I think in, in our generation of, 
uh, Christians is we're just, we're just careless. Um, like I remember, you know, coming into that conviction uh, with First Corinthians fourteen for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church, and um, and we had uh, at the time uh, the church that that I was a part of had um, a, a woman would uh, give announcements, and I remember you know just thinking, well, but uh, you know it's just announcements. There's no text. There's no this. There's no. Th- um, but then thinking, okay, but but this is speaking, you know. And then I started thinking, you know, beyond even that, I was like, okay, what what about these announcements? Just period. Like what, what are, are we supposed to be doing announcements, you know, on the Lord's day? And, and, and so, and I started just, you know, um, chopping away little by little by little, you know, looking like thinking meticulously about from start to finish the Lord's day worship gathering and everything that we were doing in it and what was being said and, uh, what was not being said and why, you know, uh, having, you know, biblical reasoning for everything that we were doing. And, um, and I just, I just realized, you know, that uh, I had never thought about worship, in that, in that way before. I, I just, I felt like, um, I, I, you know, I never would have, if you had asked me, I never would have said, you know, that worship is trite, you know, or, or the, trivial, but, um, but I was at some level treating it that way. I, I wouldn't have verbalized it like that. I, I didn't even realize the ways in which I was trivializing, uh, worship, but I was, you know, and so, uh, you know, so now, you know, when we, when we begin our worship, I, I don't know what your liturgy looks like, but we always open with, um, uh, let us now begin to worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then we have immediately Scripture, um, you know, a, a call to ascent, um, uh, you know, uh, something that is calling us up uh, to be seated in heavenly places, to to go into the heavenly realm um, to worship. And then, you know, and then pastoral prayers, a prayer of ascent. And then there's a reading of uh, God's law. And then there's a corporate, you know, lead and response of confession of sin. And then a assurance of Christ's pardon. And then there's... Um, you know, we say, uh, you know, um, no longer confessing our sins, but trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And usually, you know, maybe a, a text like First John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then uh, the minister will say something along the lines of, so now, Christian, uh, no longer confessing our sins, let us now rather confess our faith. Christian, what do you believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator. Of, you know, and, and now we're uh, confessing our faith. You know, and then that leads to preaching of the Word, and then the Word culminates into um, our uh, some worship through song, and then it all culminates into uh, participation, um, partaking of the Lord's Supper, and and then there's you know a, a benediction and the doxology, and and you know everything is very very intentional. And I'm not saying that's the you know maybe the only way to do it. Um, but I'm just saying it's it's radically different than the way that I thought even just five years ago about uh, the Lord's Day. That that in looking at God's law, looking at all these things, um, and starting with our Lord's Day worship because it's the center. Everything is flowing yeah. out of of that. But are, are we being meticulous? Are we being careful? Carefulness is just the word. It's not a fancy word. It's not a ten dollar word like the one you used earlier. But but I think it's a good word. You know that just thinking: Am I careful when I think about? Um, life, when I think about worship, when I think about what, what God has commanded. And thinking about the Lord's Day that way is was the starting point for me to start thinking about a Monday afternoon, you know, so. Yeah, I think that's, that's a beautiful point. And I think your liturgy sounds so much like, I think it was Calvin Strasburg liturgy, liturgy that, 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 that sounds very similar to what he what he worked through. And um, we, we, we apply the uh, Westminster Directory for Public Worship. And so we're going to, you're going to find that we basically do something that's, you know, a, a simplified you know, thing where we're going to have, you know, basically uh, the, the beginning with a call to worship similarly and, and going through using the word of God and singing psalms and 
and uh, you're going to find that we have the preaching out of the word and stuff like that. So I think this this basic, what you just brought out is, I think, so important. And one of the reasons the fourth commandment is so important. And you go to chapter 21 of the Westminster Confession in the London Baptist is chapter 22. Yep. There's a there's, there's a there's a chapter added about the gospel and its extent with preaching and stuff and the power of it. Um, that's after the 19 after the law in the London Baptist. And so that one. That chapter, 21 in the Westminster and 22 in the London Baptist, is about the, 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 the worship of God, and it's about the Sabbath day. And when you think about the fourth commandment applied, it gives us the division of holy time as opposed to the rest of time. And some people kind of find that to feel like weird or superstitious. And it's like, well, all of life is worship. Well, yes, it is in the sense that we're supposed to glorify God, serve God with every moment, every every element of our being, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Every second, we should redeem the time. But there are some times that are set apart for communion with God and nothing else. Mm. And so ordinary life, we, we can do all sorts of things that we're commanded to do, but they, we don't, you know, we're commanded to transport goods for trade, for example. You don't do that in the Lord's service on the Lord's day. So if you've got, you know, somebody, you know, hawking, you know, uh, you know, hot dogs in the Lord's service and throwing them out and receiving somebody throwing back some cash at them. And that would be uh, disruptive of the Lord's Day service, though it might be totally appropriate at a sporting event. Um, and so it could be a good work at the sporting event. And and so this idea that there are things that are good works for ordinary life, and then there are good works that are in worship, is a far more narrow set of things that you should do in private worship, in household worship, and in Lord's Day uh, public worship that are things that you do in those settings but you don't you don't add other stuff in there, and so a lot of those things you know, you could do in ordinary life. For example, you can pray you know while you're driving a car, but you shouldn't drive a car during public worship. Right. And so this idea that there's holy time, I think when you God gives us that in part because it's simplified. It's a simplified version of life, and we get to go in and focus on those elements of worship to commune with Him. Mm-hmm. And as we do that and we cultivate it, it makes us more intentional about the rest of life. And so I think that that's designed by God on purpose. And I think the idea that we have a more solemn attention to the public assembly on the Lord's Day helps us to then cultivate and to carefully prune other elements of life because we start to do that in that space and under the leadership of leaders of the church. And then that can be applied by heads of household in their homes and family worship. And then as you as an individual are worshiping God in private and secret in your prayer closet, as Jesus you know, talks about, um, that idea that you're, you're, you're carefully keeping everything else out there. And when you have this regulated principle of life and you go, does the law of God really say that this is something worth doing? And really believing God at the, that his word is sufficient to teach us every good work uh, mm-hmm. that we would need to do. And, and I think that it makes you read the word less woodenly because you start to go, wait a second, I've got to look for principles and applications. And when you actually try to justify activities as opposed to just making scripture a wax nose that you can you know, move around, if you're actually trying to figure out what does this mean and is this a thing you know, that I actually need in my life, it makes you read the word in a far deeper and richer way. Mm, that's good. I guess um, I know that we're, I think we're drawing close to the end of our time, but I, I wanted to uh, make sure to, to give one more. I think this is a valuable uh thing for people to, to, to have in mind. Um, and that is that there are some, there's a key motivation uh, that's given for us at the beginning of the law when we get the Ten Commandments. And I know also that I want to communicate that I think that there are principles for applying the law in detail, but also maintaining peace. Um, and what we find is, you know, the beginning of the law 
uh, what you find is there's a, a list of what's called the triple obligation. Um, and the triple obligation is the three reasons why you have to obey God. And that is, first of all, he's your maker, so he owns you. Then secondly, if you're a part of the visible church, he's covenanted with you, so he owns you. And then thirdly, if he has saved you and you're elect and Jesus paid for your sins, then he bought you. And so he has a triple claim on those who are actually the elect, and he has a single claim on everybody, and he has a double claim on those who are in the church and are unbelieving, and they need to have a, they have a greater obligation to repent and, and to believe. And so I think that when we, when we realize that God has these claims on us, we go, okay, I need to carefully apply this and be intentional in it. But then, furthermore, when you start to apply the law in detail, you can find all of a sudden you go, wow, I'm, I'm a pretty bad sinner. I'm sinning like all the time. And uh, you start to apply it to the spirit and your own attitudes and all that. And you look at other people, and you can start to interpret, interpret people really badly. And so conflict resolution becomes a thing as you're trying to apply the law. How do you avoid being this person who's just like strangling people with constantly trying to take all the applications of the law that you're realizing and just trying to impose it on them, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have this idea that Jesus teaches us, you first get the log out of your own eyes. So you, you start with self-application first before you're going out and trying to impose on everybody. And when you do tell people that they need to apply the law, your goal is to offer to help them. You're not just a Pharisee laying burdens on everybody. You're going, how can I help to lift you up, help you carry the burden, and make so we can go on together? And you will find that that makes it so that you are far more careful in thinking about which things you need to go talk to people about because you're not only giving them an obligation, but you're also putting some burden on yourself. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. If we were actually viewed ourselves as morally obligated to help the person that we're correcting um, to actually meet that correction, we'd probably offer less correction. <laughs> <laughs> right, and so so this the problem also is that sometimes people disagree, and when you point out a rebuke, you know, there's only five ways that are okay for a conflict to end. Um, and those five ways for conflict to end are, you know, you can choose to interpret something that's ambiguous in a charitable way. You can overlook something and not hold it against someone, right? But, but if you hold, if you're not, if you're not holding it against them, that means you're not like bitter about it. It means you're not talking about it behind their back. It means, it means you're actually going, okay, I'm choosing to, to, to overlook this for the sake of helping them with better things. Um, you can choose to hear them out, accept their just defense and go, you know what? I was wrong. You were right. And that one is a hard pill to swallow sometimes. Mm -hmm. The other thing is they can repent and you accept their repentance, in which case you got an obligation to actually forgive them, mm -hmm. which can also be hard for people sometimes. And the fifth way that things can go is that they can then raise it. They can escalate it to the next level. So you could take it to Matthew 18, you know, not just a one-on-one -on -one conversation, but Matthew 18 lays out, you know, go to somebody with witnesses or ultimately if they still won't repent in that context, you know, taking it to a church court. And so when we realize that rebukes are things that we have an obligation to end in one of those five ways, there's no just, hey, you're wrong. Ah, you won't take it. You're a bum. You know, there's, there's none of that. That's not an acceptable end. That also makes it so you go, you have to count the cost before you initiate some sort of a conflict resolution battle. So I don't right. know, you, you probably had a lot of experience in your pastoral work of seeing people as they come to know the law, starting to get, kind of rebuke other people. I'm, I'm curious how you've engaged on conflict resolution stuff and trying to get people to be peaceable and not yeah. just, you know, laying the law on other people all the time. Right. Yeah. Conflict's tough. Um, it's tough. I, you know, so one thing I, you know, when it comes to disagreements, 
Um, we want unity, how good and pleasing it is when brothers dwell in unity with one another. And so we're, we're longing for unity. Um, I always you know, tell people and t- tell myself, a lot of it is for my own life and how to try to do these things in a godly manner, but that there are three different um, methods of seeking unity. Um, a lot of times when we think of unity, and we think of you know disagreement, but thinking of moments where unity is is desperately needed. So it's, it usually assumes that you're currently in a state of disagreement. There's some kind of hostility that you're trying to overcome so that you can attain unity. Um, so in the midst of disagreement, when, when we think of uh, achieving unity, a lot of times uh, people think about uh, charity. So they think unity is achieved through charity. Charity in the midst of disagreement will give us unity. Um, and I think that's one means uh, that the Bible prescribes for attaining uh, unity, but um, it's not the only means, and I don't even think it's the first and foremost uh, means. The first uh, method that I, I try to utilize uh, for attaining unity is not charity, but persuasion. Um, it's great to have a sense of brotherly unity um, uh, that, that stems from uh, common charity toward one another in the midst of disagreement. Um, that's great. Uh, but what's better than that is to have brotherly unity and agreement to actually yeah. have the same view. So right. I think of like, uh, so Ephesians 4, I remember that being so pivotal for me um, a few years back uh, as I was teaching through the book of Ephesians. Uh, it was the first time I came to even realize uh, that in Christian terms, uh, that there's more than just one kind of unity. Um, that there's there's a, a unity, I would describe it like this, other theologians have used th- th- this language, uh, but there's unity of love and then there's unity of the faith. Um, unity of love, you could say there's a unity of common care. Uh, with unity of the faith, there's a unity of common conviction. Um, so unity of common care uh, versus unity of common conviction, unity of love uh, versus a unity of the faith. And when you look at Ephesians 4 and you look at the the end goal, right? So you're training you know, uh, Christ as uh, the head, he's the head of the church. And as the head of the church, one of the things that he does, he nourishes and he fits his body um, for every good work. Um, and one of the things that he does is he graciously and lovingly gives to his body, the church, good gifts. And one of those good gifts is called leaders. Um, and so he gives leaders, apostles and prophets and um, uh, evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And I view that as a fourfold, not a fivefold ministry. I think apostles and prophets were, if you cross-reference that over to Ephesians 2.20, that, that's the foundation, that that work is done. It's still working in the sense of the scripture. Uh, the apostles and prophets is the foundation. Um, and, you know, but then we have evangelists and shepherd teachers. I view that as like a hyphen. So shepherd teachers, actually one role. I view that as basically essentially a pastor. And then you have evangelists. So you have uh, apostles and prophets. That's the foundation. Now we have evangelists and pastors building on that foundation. And they're doing all this to train and equip the saints themselves to execute. So the saints are executing the work of ministry and building one another up in love so that the end goal, when you think of, okay, what are we trying to achieve? Uh, no longer tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, no longer this spiritual child, uh, childishness, this spiritual immaturity, but the full stature of, of, of Christ, full manhood, um, and uh, that we arrive at a, um, a unity of the knowledge. It says a unity of the knowledge of the Son of God, meaning that um, it is not, diversity is not our strength. Diversity of thought, you know, diversity of theology is not our strength. That's, you know, so walking into a church and saying, hey, there are uh, 17 different, you know, uh, views of soteriology represented in our church. Isn't that cool? No, that's stupid. That's, 
that is not cool, <laughs> you know, because uh, we're not relativists. So that all that means is that 16, um, at, at minimum, all, all 17 is possible, but 16 um, of these different views are wrong, and, and you're harboring uh, uh, wrong unbiblical views about who Christ is and how he saves. And so uh, right. so my point is, you know, you, when you think of unity, there, it's not just unity of love and common care, but there's this unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Do we know the same Jesus? Do we have the same view from the Scripture of Jesus? And do we have a unity not just of love, but a unity of faith, not just common conviction or a common care, but common conviction? So all that being back to those three things, my first goal when it comes to uh, resolving conflict is not charity in the midst of disagreement, but persuasion so that we can overcome disagreement, that we could actually agree. So the first thing is to try to persuade someone by making good, sound, biblical arguments and making them in love and not being a jerk, but but really trying to persuade someone, uh, brother, I think you should change your view. I, before we talk about charity in the midst of holding differing views, first, um, I think you should change your view because I love you and you're wrong, <laughs> you know? And if yes. you're not wrong, then I'm wrong. And I need to know how, how am I wrong? So I think first, you know, persuasion, if you can't do the persuasion, then charity in the midst of disagreement. Um, and then lastly, if you can't even have charity in the midst of disagreement, then, uh, you know, the third thing is blessing one another. So long as it's not heresy, so long as it's not, um, um, a primary doctrine, blessing one another to labor in differing portions of the Lord's vineyard. I think of Paul and Barnabas, but Paul and Barnabas, that was not a win. That was a loss that we have right. uh, recorded in scripture. So I view that as your, your third. So number one, let's get on the same page and have common conviction. Number two, if we can't have common conviction through persuasion, then charity, let's have common care. And then third, uh, if we can't even get along um, because this is just too big of a deal for whatever reason, um, then, then, you know, I think of R.C. Sproul, you know, I always use him and uh, MacArthur as an example. They had a uh, great unity. And the way that they achieved that great unity was they were on separate coast, on uh, separated by 2,600 miles in two separate denominations, two different churches on two different uh, sides of the country. And if it was any different, if they had been in the same church, uh, they would not have been golfing with each other. They would have killed each other. You know, so you know what I mean. So sometimes that's the way unity is achieved. Is uh, uh, you know, the Chesterton kind of you know, good fences make uh, good neighbors. So th those are my thoughts. What, what do you think? I think it's absolutely right, and I think that charity, uh, you know, unity of charity, unity of you know, of love, is for the ability to come to agreement. Yep. So we we forget the knowledge of God is the highest thing for us, right? So we're designed to be knowers of God. We need to be unity in the truth, and the truth of God is more important than you or me, right? And so. That being the case, if we love each other, we're going to seek to spread that truth. We're going to seek to be in submission to what is revealed in the word. And so I think that the church reaches different levels of maturity. And you mentioned, I think Ephesians 4 is a fantastic text to help to show, look, the, the, the officers are given, and I think evangelists are, are not a continuing office. So it sounds like we might have oh, Okay, a, okay. That's, that's interesting. Arm wrestle about that. Yeah, uh, but, <laughs> that's great. So, so the, the idea that, that, that the officers are for the purpose of building up the church and so that they can do the ministry and this idea of working together in the bond of peace, the covenantal arrangement of the, of the covenant of grace so that we can be working together, seeking to maintain covenantal unity so that we can come to greater agreement so that we can see the church matured more towards the maturity of Christ. And I think Philippians 3 does a great job of talking about, look, there's the maximal maturity that nobody'd reached yet, including Paul at that time. And then there's the maturity that the church has reached. And those who were mature were supposed to help to, you know, to, to forget the things that had come before and to strive on towards the mark. And so I think that we, we see in the history of the church, 
is a process where the church comes to greater and greater agreement and you get covenanted uniformity. That takes the form of a confessional statement, a directory for government, a directory for worship. And you use these things to try to gather around and work together with those shared external forms. And so you have, you know, over and over again in the New Testament, you see we should be in agreement about doctrine and we should use the same rule to walk by. And so I think that there's the objective reality of the Word of God as the rule for both. And then there's what, how mature is the church at this time in history? And what have we attained to? And we walk according to the rule that we've, we've attained to at that point. And then we, we make sure to discipline out people that are rejecting what's been attained to. And so that work that the church today is more mature than the church was at the time of Nicaea, for example. Right. Partly because of the benefit of the blessing of the Nicene, you know, uh, order so that we have this ability to use the form of words. If somebody says, oh, moi, usios, now you're going to go, what's wrong with you? Right. Right. And so that idea that we can say the same substance as opposed to similar substance right. is a part of that. So I think right. this work of coming to unity in the truth is the goal and charity and overlooking are so that we can focus on bigger things or things that are more disruptive. Right. So we pick a point to fight on on the basis of what's the more basic truth that needs to be dealt with. Because if you agree on more basic things like the authority of the word of God, you should be able to come to less basic things like how do we define God out of the scriptures. And and then furthermore, if something's causing disorder in the public life of the church, you might deal with that. So you're picking things that are for the order and you're picking things that are, you know, you're trying to pick the points where you disagree more basically so that you can find the place to wrestle with each other for each other's good as opposed to just the hot button issues that are all over up there and that's kind of chaotic and you don't resolve things but that idea of trying to pick fights in an orderly way so that you can come to greater unity is i think how we grow in unity in the church and i think that's you talk about diversity not being our strength unity is our strength hmm. and and that's how the church if it has a unified voice the covenant of uniformity it can see dramatic political reordering and you can see society being governed by the conscience that is the church and Amen. so that unity of speech is so important. So coming to unity allows us to speak with one voice and have one rule to behave by. And, and so we talked about how the law of God is the tool or the instruction manual for dominion. And so that being the case, we need to realize that it teaches us how to live a life where we govern ourselves well. It teaches us how to order our homes so that we can be masters of the home, good husbands and good fathers. And also it teaches us how to be good churchmen to see doctrine, worship, and government in good order. And then it teaches us in the state how to have the proper purposes of protecting those builders, right? The state is the sword. And we talked earlier on that the state is the sword. It's a protector right. of those who are doing the building. Right. And so if we, if we realize those things, we see that the law of God teaches us how to exercise power in all four covenant institutions. And so I'm really excited for getting to talk through the next time I know we're planning to talk about, you know, men are not just husbands and fathers, but they're masters right. of the estate. And so right. I'm looking forward to I keep to thinking of uh, Tom Bombadil, uh, you know, uh, right. Tom is master. Um, I, I feel like Tolkien had some good stuff on, um, and, and what it looked like to be a, uh, a jolly master, um, you know, that he was not weak by any, any stretch, um, but he also wasn't uh, cold or mean spirited that he was, jolly joyful but uh very clearly master of his do domain so. absolutely and yeah, i think that'd be great the, yeah one of, one of those things that he did so well was to display that idea of the singing man right and so i would encourage people to think about singing is psalm 128 especially around their table tonight think about trying to recruit your wife and kids and singing that you might have a good time yeah that's great all right, well, uh, Mr. Reese, thank you so much this has been a pleasure and i'm excited to continue this series together talking about uh 
Christian power and godly dominion, looking at the law of God as our roadmap, as the key uh, to succeeding in the world that God has made. We have no choice but to live in God's world, and um, it makes no sense to try to live in God's world in a way that God did not design. If we want things to go well for us, uh, then you follow the master. Um, you follow his way. You do it his way, and uh, and we're blessed. And it's not begrudging. It's not, um, it's not just constraint. God's not taking our fun. Uh, he's saying, uh, no, you you want to soar, you want to uh, you want to grow, you want to thrive. Uh, this is the ticket. This is how you do it. So, I'm excited to continue talking about it with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. The Lord bless you. All right, you too.